T-G-I-M-T-M-R-E. This is episode 324. I guess it's my pride. It's, it's ego, which is not a good thing, but it does protect me sometimes. And in this case, it was, well, I don't want to, I'm so close to a year. I don't want to give it up. And along the way, I woke up and I went, oh my God, this has been the best year of my life. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Bobby. Bobby took her last drink on December 16th, 2019, and she is from upstate New York. Before I get going with our intro for today, I did want to give a shout out to Brian. Brian is one of our chat hosts. So within Recovery Elevator lives our community, which is Cafe RE. And within Cafe RE, we have meetings and we have online chats, as we call them. And I still attend them because I am on this journey with all of you. And the inspiration behind today's introduction got sparked and came from one of these chats that Brian hosted. So thank you, Brian, for giving back to our community. You know, hosts from our chats are volunteers, and I am very grateful for everyone that hosts them and offers their service to our community that we all benefit from. So thank you. And alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. During this chat that I'm bringing up during this meeting, the topic was evolution of sobriety, evolution of our journeys. And when I heard that this was the topic, I immediately went to an image in my mind and the image of the chimp evolution into a human. And that is a straight shot. That is a linear evolution. And I thought about how when we think about our own journey and our own evolution, we have this idea that it needs to be linear, moving forward, and improving, I guess, you know, always envisioning what's next. And that next is assumed to be better than where we were before. It's assumed that it's an upgrade or, you know, a step up. We've talked a lot about how this journey isn't perfect and this journey is messy. And it is a message that I want to continue to share because sometimes you're on top of the world and sometimes you wake up and wonder why you feel so stuck and you kind of fall in this victim mentality where you think, you know, is it always going to be this hard? I'm working so hard. Why am I here again? You know, it is a journey that has a lot of chapters. So anyway, back to the evolution thing. What I started thinking as people were sharing around the room in this meeting is that this evolution is not just nonlinear, but there is a function to it being nonlinear. And then I thought about puzzles. And I thought about how when I buy a new puzzle, I unbox it and there's a ton of pieces, usually 1,000. I still haven't made the jump to 1,500, but maybe, maybe the next one. Anyway, a lot of pieces. What I do is I start sorting those pieces. I start putting things together and separating them by color. I start seeing a lot. You know, a thousand pieces is many little pieces. And when I look at them all just in a big pile, 
I can't even imagine how all of those are going to come together to make this picture that I'm looking at on the box, right? So while we may think and even desire for things to be just a linear evolution with progress at every turn and us feeling better and better, sometimes it does feel like we're going backwards. When I'm puzzling and I've made some progress, maybe I've managed to put all of the edges in place or maybe I have an image or a shape that has come together. You know, there's a lot of pieces that I, that I grab and I try them and it doesn't work. So then I put that piece back. But I make some sort of memory of that piece. I don't forget about it or throw it away or get mad at it because, dang, you're not the piece I needed. I just kind of make a mental note. You know, oh, that one didn't fit. It's blue. It didn't fit. It has three corners. Okay, I'm going to put it back. And then I try another one, right? And then maybe not even the same day, maybe next week, because these puzzles take some time to put together. Maybe the week after, I see a little gap. I see a little puzzle piece outline. And I think, I think back on that piece, that blue piece that I grabbed, I don't know, a week, a couple days ago that didn't fit when I tried it. But I'm almost certain that this is the piece that goes in this little gap that is right in front of me right then and there. So I go find it and I put it in there and it perfectly fits. And when that happens, if you like puzzling like me, when that happens, ah, it just feels so good. You know, I love puzzling with my mom because we both make these expressions when we finally get the piece that that matches. It's very victorious and it's definitely not for everyone. But uh, my point here is that this is like our journey. Sometimes we have to go back and travel backwards to grab something that maybe didn't make sense at the time, but now it perfectly fits with where we're at. And the puzzle pieces can be maybe a tool that you tried and didn't work or a lesson that you didn't learn and you have to kind of go back and live it out again so that you can process it and learn it and not repeat it. Maybe it's a feeling that you put away and now you actually have the capacity to talk about it or journal about it or just move it through your body. Everything has a purpose. The non-linear part of our evolution is rigged in our favor, is there for a reason, not just for our struggle, but for a purpose. And that going back and forth and back and forth to collect the piece that you left behind, yes, that feels exhausting a lot of the time. But it is part of that bigger picture that we can't really see on a day-to-day, right? And for me, I'm working around accepting that (laughs) the journey never ends and I will never get there. That is the one thing that puzzles and recovery don't have in common. You know, when you finish the puzzle, you finish it and it's beautiful and it's perfect unless you lose a piece, which happens a lot in my house with the kids. But what I'm saying is I'm working on accepting that I may never arrive, but when I go back and it feels like I'm backtracking and it feels like I'm failing and it feels like, oh man, like all of this work, why am I going through all of this work? I'm learning to see that it's progress in a way that may not feel like progress, but it is. We can't connect the dots all at once. We can't unbox the puzzle and put it together in 10 seconds. You know, there is a trajectory 
And I think that when I learned to see things this way to where I understand that it's not about my worth, it's not about, oh, you didn't get it that time, now you have to go and try again. It has nothing to do with morality. It has nothing to do with belonging. It has nothing to do with me being lovable or not. It's simply an exercise in patience, in detachment, in trust, in all of these bigger concepts that when we hear them, we're like, oh, surrender, what does it mean? Acceptance, what does it mean? Whatever, the eye rolls, you know, the bigger, 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 bigger concepts. It's about discovering our wholeness. It's not about perpetuating the shame cycle and feeling like we're failing and feeling like we don't deserve to try again. You know, because we've all had those thoughts of, you know what, I better just go back. I should go back to what I was doing before because this isn't working and I see everyone around me and everyone's got their puzzle all put together and mine still looks like a pile of teeny pieces. You know, let me just let me just put it back in the box. I feel like we spend so much time getting hung up on those feelings. We lose our momentum and it's very defeating. But then there's the other side of it, which I keep seeing in so many of you time and time again. It's that resilience. We don't quit quitting. And that's the whole point. The puzzle may be on the table for three weeks without you grabbing any pieces. You may actually put it back in the box and then decide you're going to give it another shot. You may have a week where almost half of the puzzle came together really fast. Who cares about time anyway, right? If we choose to see that with every piece comes a lesson, I'm hoping it'll help shred a little bit of that shame because we're not meant to carry it all. And you'll find where all the pieces fit in due time, not on our timeline, the one that we grasp onto so tightly, but on life's timeline. Just don't quit quitting. Keep that puzzle out for me. All right. Eso es todo. Thank you for listening to my words today. And before we hear from Bobby, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Caféry. When I decided I wanted to pursue an alcohol-free life, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. I joined Caféry almost immediately after I found it and was so surprised at the amount of grace, support, and love that was offered to me right away. One of the things that I realized was that I had a lot in common with the people in this community, people all over the world with similar feelings and struggles that truly understood me. Community matters, and lining up with people that have the same goal in mind really helped me stay the course on my journey, especially when I came across some bumps on the road. When joining Cafe RE, you get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $24 a month, you get access to the community, you get paired with an accountability partner, you can attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of our monthly fees goes towards our service project, where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. 
I can't wait to see you all there. Hey, Bobby. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I am fabulous, Odette. I am honored to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to our conversation, so I'm happy it's finally here. And let's get right to it, Bobby. When was the last time you had a drink? December 16th of 2019. All right. And can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What do you do for a living, for fun? And yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself, Bobby. Well, I live in very snowy upstate New York at the moment. <laughs> I don't have a family other than, yeah, other than some folks in Connecticut, a beautiful 16-year-old niece that lights up my world, but no babies or anything good like that for me. I am trying to develop and grow the two businesses that I launched in 2020. So I'm figuring out entrepreneurialness, if that's a word, for fun. Fun is everything. It's a little altered, right, with 2020. Mm -hmm. But volleyball, roller skating, I love reading. I love self-education, puzzles, act, Zumba, Zumba for sure. Lots of activities that are kind of either virtual or stalled maybe right now. Yeah, and I'm excited to get to know you a little bit more, but I definitely can sense that high energy from you from the interactions that we've had. And when you're mentioning all of these activities, I'm just over here nodding my head because you just have such good energy and you radiate positivity. So yeah, I'm glad you kind of like doing a little bit of everything. It sounds like I do. I do as long as it's fun. And I'm, I'm getting a little bit more adventurous even in my old age. <laughs> That's good, especially in sobriety, right? It, exactly. All right, Bobby, and give listeners some background on your history with drinking. When did you start drinking? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving your goals? And when did you decide to stop? Well, I've had a pretty weird relationship with drinking, Odette. I started when I was 15. I can remember the first time I got drunk and I got caught. And as, as life progressed, I, I drank a lot through high school but I had, I had a biological father that was an alcoholic, and there was periods of time before I was even 21 and legal that I was like, I shouldn't drink. This, this isn't serving me. And I had periods of sobriety early on just because I didn't want to end up like him it was essentially my goal. <laughs> Hold on, but I, I, want, I have to interrupt because I think it's the first time I ever hear that you were having those thoughts at such a young age, was it mainly because you saw what it did to him or because you realized certain effect it had on you? Because that's, that's amazing that you were already thinking about that all the way back then. Well, growing up, we had, we had a lot of addiction and a lot of recovery in the family. So like we grew up going to AA picnics as kids and I was in Alateen. And to be honest, my fight to not become an alcoholic in my mind led me to becoming a compulsive gambler. That's what I believe happened. So even though I was being not drinking in these different periods, I had shifted gears towards a different addiction. Yeah, and it's like your brain found something else. And I, and I do want to clarify for listeners who aren't familiar, Alateen and Al-Anon are organizations where family members and loved ones of people who are going to AA or seeking support for alcohol and drug abuse, the, they go to these places because there are meetings for the family members and for, for the loved ones. So you were exposed to this since you were younger. 
Yes. And I resented it. Why do I have to go to these things when it's other people's problems? That was my mentality very early on. So I, I just didn't like that. I didn't want to have to work on something due to other people. I know now it was to help me survive the situation and do my own healing and maintenance and all that. But that wasn't how I viewed it back then, for sure. Of course, especially when you see that the other person is the one that is acting negatively. And it's like, why am I getting affected by this? You know, why am I getting my therapist always says that it's like somebody sneezes and then everybody gets part of the snot. Basically, everybody in the family gets <laughs> gets part of it. And whether or not you want to assume responsibility for how it's affecting you doesn't exclude you from being affected. And, and it takes time. My mom never wanted to go to Al-Anon. I, I shouldn't say never. She took at least five years to realize that it had affected her. But at the beginning, she was just in denial about having to go herself. And like you said, she was like, it's not my problem. He has to fix himself. And I'm just going to be right here, you know, and it, it's a pro it's a process. For sure. And everybody has to take their own their own time. And it wasn't like I did not embrace anything 12 step until 2017, really. And and that was after being in GA for two years in, in 2013. I would I would go to Gamblers Anonymous and I would call it GA junk. And it was just my association with 12 steps because I had never gotten past that that impression that it was punishment. So did you pretty much stay away from alcohol, shifted into gambling? Like what was the trajectory then? So no, not exactly. So in my 20s, I was a over the road truck driver. Mm -hmm. And because I was driving, you, I wasn't generally partying on the road. I'd go home for the weekend. And that was when I started my tradition of sleeping like under a bathroom sink in the bar or under my truck because the room was spinning inside the cab. Crazy things like that. Like I can remember it going back that way. But I, I thought all along that it was normal drinking in the sense of I'm in my 20s. I'm supposed to be doing that. And in my 30s, I, I got married and drank with my husband or, or went out and again, thought it was the normal amount of drinking. He was usually DD. So that makes it not a problem. Mm -hmm. And where it really ramped up, I was... So I was gambling in the background. That was definitely taking a lot more precedent, precedent than the drinking was, although the drinking was a problem. And when I finally decided to go to rehab in, in 2017, like when I told people I was going away, I actually got asked, are you going for gambling or drinking? So it was no secret. I, I, was, at the, I was at the bar every day before I went to rehab and it, it, was, it could have went either way. I wasn't ready to give up drinking at that point though, because it was too overwhelming to try to battle two things in one shot. So it was definitely focused on the gambling that was destroying my life in a bigger way. Did you take yourself to rehab or did you have somebody tell you that you had to go? I, I went myself. I had come up with every excuse in the book not to go. You know, how do I do this when I have no money or how do I do this? How do I miss work? Because at that point I had an executive level job. It was like, well, I can't leave my job for, for four weeks and I can't live without a paycheck. And all the obstacles kept getting removed. I found out I had, you know, coverage and Kansas paid for me to go and all the, all the obstacles were removed. So I, I ran out of excuses. So I owed it to myself because if I wasn't gambling, I was drinking, I was drinking way more than 
I had ever in my life. It was it was always to the bar. I was getting hammered before Zumba, before riding my bike. I, I I'm very lucky that I didn't I didn't get a DUI. I I did like hit something once and made a dent in my car, but nobody was the wiser. So I was very fortunate, I think, that it didn't catch up with me quite that way. But I was getting in trouble a lot, like at work, both in Kansas when I was there and and here. I had drank too much at work events and got called out by senior management, which was not very fun experiences. And that's that's one way to know that your drinking is overboard if you're not welcome at company functions anymore. Yeah, for sure. And and I, I like reminding people you don't have to get to all of these yets in order to seek support. You know, you don't have to wait until you do crash a car or you do get a DUI. And I'm so grateful that you lucked out. And I'm also thankful that you didn't continue to justify it because you hadn't reached almost those rock bottom milestones, if we want to call them something in order to get help. So how long were you at the rehab center for Bobby? 28 days, just like the movie. Mm -hmm. And how was that for you? I think it left quite an impression. I went to rehab in Minnesota and the facility had a drug and alcohol wing. And it also had the gambling wing. And we were treated a little different in the gambling wing than the substance abuse. But my biggest feeling and takeaway from it was the loss of control for myself. I had no power of when I got to take a shower, what I ate, when I ate, what I could do. And my freedom was taken away. And and to me, rehab was kind of like a cross between summer camp and jail. That's the best way I can explain it. Mm-hmm. And I went in with the mentality of this is going to be the only time in my life where my only job is to focus on me. So I wanted to make the best of it, but it was a, it was definitely a struggle. And I can remember being like, I don't ever want to be in this situation again. I don't want my freedom gone. And that's what it felt like. So it's like, all right, I have to not gamble again in that, at that point, because I don't want to go through this again. It was not pleasant. Wow. I, as, as someone who also went to rehab and for a similar amount of time, I'd never had things framed to me in this way where you realized that you were not in control and somehow you connected the dots that if you pursued your behaviors, you would probably end up in a very similar situation where you would have no freedom and no control of your life. That's crazy to me that you connected the dots like that. Well, thank you. I, I'm I'm not exactly sure how or why other than just feeling like I didn't belong there. I, I just did. I mean, I did belong there, but I felt when I when I looked around at my peers, I felt like I didn't fit in. I was treated different by the counselors. Like I wasn't getting as much homework as other people. And I was like, well, why not? It, it was just a really weird dichotomy, I guess. Yeah. And it is a it is an awkward, weird situation where, you know, you are, like you said, focusing on yourself and letting yourself be led by professionals and other people. But it just is also awkward. And there are a lot of people who are also struggling. It's it's hard. And I feel like you shared that there were two wings, one for gambling, one for substance abuse. And I'm assuming you you had this weird sense of not belonging to either, but also belonging to both. Like that had to be a little bit of a mind trip, was it? 
It, it totally was. We weren't allowed, like the substance abuse side would get training every morning or I don't know what you want to call it, but they would all be allowed to go in this room to listen to speakers or whatever the teaching was in the day. And we had to stay back and watch it from like a TV and stuff. And it was like, why do they get access to this was part of the thinking. And then they could come to our wing for GA meetings, but we couldn't go to their wing for AA meetings. Mm. So it, it was different. What happened when you left, Bobby? Well, in the midst of that, right before I left, I had interviewed for a job back here on the East Coast. So the reason I didn't do the full 30 days is because I was like, I need to go home and pack up because I now had to relocate back to upstate New York for this new job that I negotiated while in treatment, which was not an easy feat, I will tell you. But I thought that the lay of the land, because I was I was living at this bar practically, and that's where a lot of my community was. So I needed to I needed to come home and there was more more treatment here. I had to do aftercare and going through that process, I was getting called out. There was the directors like, why are you drinking? Or when are you going to stop the drinking? Like it, it was an environment where they didn't hold back. So they would question, they would question that. So in 2019, my new year's resolution, so to speak, was to not use alcohol as a coping mechanism. That was the first time I had put effort into it. And I had discovered Recovery Elevator somewhere around 2018 on my way, like driving back and forth to these meetings. And I'm like, that question that Paul says, like, if you have to ask yourself if you have a problem with alcohol, it's a pretty good indicator that you have a problem with alcohol. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to put some focus on this. And and I did, I remember I did drink throughout 2019, but I was like, it was very mindful. And there was two days that I specifically remember using drinking as a coping mechanism. It still blows my mind that if you're, if you're doing the work, the inside work and the recovery work, whatever that is, how can one addiction still be like surviving and thriving? And when you're trying to handle the other one, like it just, it was, it was weird to me. And what ended up happening late 2019, I broke up with the guy and it was heart wrenching. And I ended up drunk texting him and I was the evilest I've ever been. I don't think I've ever had a moment where I was that venomous and that scared me. I didn't like the idea of, of the I guess that would be like one of my rock bottom moments was having this other personality. And again, it still didn't stop me from drinking, but I didn't like that. And as we got closer to 2020, I had signed up for the Asia trip with Recovery Elevator. And the way I read, I'm kind of a black and white person and I'm a rule follower as a general thing. And in the invitation, it was asked that we were sober 30 days before the trip. So since 2017 rehab, I hadn't been sober that amount of time. Mm -hmm. So I was preparing for the trip and I didn't drink. That's why December 16th, we were leaving on January 20th or whatever. So I had a little bit more than a month going into the trip. And that kind of started the ball rolling for my sobriety. I can't tell you that it was an intentional decision, 
to get to a year in that moment or get to life or to do any of that. It was, it was more like, well, this was the ask. I'm going to follow the rules because I, I would have felt horrible if I went and I had drank within 30 days. It, it was just a psychology thing. And it was, it was a good one. And when I got back from the trip after learning how much fun you can have sober and all the incredible people that you can meet, I came home to find out that my biological father and my biological grandmother had died within a week of each other. And I was estranged from my father. So, but I was also the oldest child. So I was the next to kin and I got to throw him a funeral the day before the world shut down for COVID. And I got the text about him passing away the very first night that I was trying to be out sober in a bar with the people I had had my last drink with. Like I was already testing myself and I was fairly confident I wouldn't drink. And I got that text and I had to start making decisions at that point about what am I, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to drink? It was like a pride thing. I don't want to cope. Like I had already had that on the radar when I got all this crap to deal with. I don't want to, I don't want to drink to cope with it. Like I want to stick to this. And that, that bad text was in the back of my head as well. So going through all these emotions and all this craziness and then COVID, you know, like all the things were just ramping up. I actually was like too afraid to drink because I didn't think I'd stop. I didn't think I would do the right things. I didn't think I could handle the mess. So I sat in the crap of 2020 and just processed my feelings. And I was fortunate enough. There was a girl on our trip that celebrated a year and, and we had similar similar paths. She was a child of an alcoholic and she wasn't necessarily trying to quit drinking for herself, but just to see if she can do it. And it stuck in my head. So as it progressed around nine months, I went back to the town where the bar was that I used to hang out in. And again, not trying to test myself, but wanting to make sure I could survive life without alcohol in it and still have the same friends and the same places and the same things. I guess it's my pride. It's it's ego, which is not a good thing, but it does protect me sometimes. And in this case, it was, well, I don't want to, I'm so close to a year. I don't want to give it up. And along the way, I woke up and I went, oh my God, this has been the best year of my life. I have been so productive. I opened a second company that I wouldn't even had on the radar. I, I'm developing teams. My My podcast was doing well. Like all these things just started to be, way better than they ever were. And I was like, hmm, there might be a correlation between me not drinking and life going good. Bobby, I just want to say I commend your strength because I I think I'm sorry for your losses. And I think that if somebody would have told you this is going to happen at this moment, I don't know if you would have realized how much strength you were going to muster up in that moment and just do the thing without drinking. So how powerful that you were able to step into a decision that quickly out of obviously you said there was some fear there about not being able to stop there was some grief in the process there was some you you had a lot on your plate that was basically shoved to you and and you just reacted in your best interest probably without even knowing it at the moment which is crazy when you think about it in hindsight and i do want to say that you used an amazing hack which is signing up to either an event or a retreat or something that can serve as as something to look forward to. And if you are a rule follower, I'm a rule follower as well, that helped you get through those first 30 days, which for many people 
those are the hardest. So it worked out in your favor completely. It did. And sometimes I feel really bad, especially being in like the RE community. My journey's so different. There wasn't as much intent. I think that doing all the recovery work helped heal. I think that as I went through 2020, I podcasted every day and some days twice a day. So it was kind of like I had my own voice journal of sorts to process and talk through things. So that was definitely a help. But I feel on some level, it almost fell away. Like it, I didn't even have to work that hard at it. And that makes me feel horrible because people are, are white knuckling it and, and struggling so much. And I just somehow had this underlying theme where even there was a point when I got in trouble at work, uh, I thought I was going to get fired. And I went to my counselor and we were researching rehab for alcohol now. And she was telling me, she was like, well, you have to, if they ask for your symptoms, she was basically telling me to embellish things like the shakes and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to lie to get into treatment. If someone's legitimately having shakes and this kind of stuff, they deserve the bed more than me anyway, was how I felt about it. So there's, there's some mixed feelings about that, which I think could be very dangerous as well. Like the whole thinking that maybe I really wasn't a problem drinking drinker, the further away from a drink I got, you know, like that, again, that ego maybe working in a little bit different way that could get me in trouble or being complacent, that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, I, I went off a little on a tangent there, but it's something that really is unsettling to me at times. Yeah. And it, it it's something that I'm glad you brought up because I feel like a lot of the times, you know, the, the concept of terminal uniqueness, like what I've learned through this podcast is that we have a lot of listeners and I'm grateful for every single person that listens. And for every story that is shared on here, there are, even though your story is unique, there is a percentage of people that has a very similar story to yours. So I'm glad you're bringing this up because it's completely valid. And in my experience, and it similarly happened to you, I wasn't just struggling with alcohol. I also struggled with an eating disorder. So when I decided to find a sober community, a part of me was even wondering, is my struggle with alcohol really that bad to where I fit in with these people? You know, and I questioned whether or not I belonged. And the fact that we even through the struggle, we still question our sense of belonging blows my mind because yes, there are a lot of different stories and there are a lot of different ways in which people navigate this path and this journey. But <laughs> The desire to live a better life and to reach your highest potential is what makes you belong in a community of like-minded individuals that are working towards the same goal. So I want to validate your feelings and your thoughts, but also let you know that, you know, there are a lot of people out there like you and, and, and the fact that your struggle feels maybe sometimes less than other people has nothing to do with whether or not you deserve everything that's now unfolding to you. I don't know. Don't diminish your struggling is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Oda. I really appreciate you saying that. And I think you've probably given me more comfort than I've been able to give myself on this topic. So I really do appreciate your words and, and I hear you and I will definitely keep that feedback in mind. Yeah, totally. And tell me, Bobby, so those 30 days, 
even after you left rehab, you went back to drinking. And I know that's the case for a lot of people. Did you think that you were in control, but you were still <laughs> kind of curious about it because you started listening to the podcast and you signed up for for the trip? I mean, for someone who's a rule follower like me, you were still kind of giving yourself permission to still drink. So talk to me about the decision to sign up because it was also an expensive trip. I mean, our international trips are a little more uh, like they are a little bit more expensive. And how was that month leading to if you didn't have a lot of community or support because all of us met you after that? Well, I knew I didn't know the why, but I knew I had to be on that trip from the first mm -hmm. time I heard about it. I just knew. And if I may share a cute little story that validates this, somebody reached out to me randomly and was like, Hey, you really helped me with this. I'd like to send you on a trip anywhere you want to go. All expenses paid. And I was like, what? It was like completely out of the blue during the sign up period. And I wouldn't let him pay for the whole trip, but he did help. I said, well, you know, one of us will pay for the flight. One of us will pay for the thing, which was again, validation that I needed to go on that trip. And when I left, when I left rehab, it, I didn't make a decision to quit drinking. And I remember one of my sober friends reached out to me and was like, Bobby, you already have 28 days alcohol free. Don't, don't drink again. But I was like, no, I can't do this one thing at a time. So the sober trip was probably to explore my curiosity. And then this nagging feeling that I just needed to do this. I, I don't know why. I just knew I had to be there. And it's up, it's upon reflection, I think, more than even in the moment. It was great in the moment. And I learned things and, and I'm grateful for the people in the community because we still stay in touch. But I think that trip laid the foundation. It was kind of like, okay, here's some of the tools you need for all this crazy shit that's about to go down. That's kind of what it felt like. I love that you say it's upon reflection because we have to learn and... A lot of this that we feel and process and are able to see differently is upon reflection. You know, when it's happening to us in real time, it is hard and it's hard to understand why. And and we do have to lean into this trust and this intuition that you're saying that you were being kind of nudged. Like, I have to go on this trip. Everything's lining up. Someone's even providing some financial help. So let's go. Like, I'm really glad that you listened to your inner voice because I don't know about you, but sometimes I really like this intuition and that inner inner voice and inner compass. And well, before when I wasn't really active in my recovery, I didn't know which one was which. Like, should I trust it this time? Should I not? Like almost like two different people inside of my brain. And it sounds like you were already in sync with your inner purpose and someone inside of you telling you, do the next right thing for yourself, Bobby. And that was the trip. A hundred percent. And I'll be, I'll be completely transparent. I was also mesmerized by RE and the community and Paul and just the whole culture of it. So I wanted to learn more. I wanted to understand. I wanted to be part of that because he inspired me to do my show. Not that he knew that, but I was like, oh, I feel this way and, and I need to talk to the gambling community. And he was, you know, he was my first guest. So on some level, I kind of put Paul on a pedestal. Hopefully he won't listen to this, but because he's very too humble for that. But it was it was to get to know this person that I had kind of just been so I counted on him. I counted on him every week for a lesson. I 
I wanted to learn more about what made him the way he was and how he thought that way. So there was that piece of it too, and to see the community. And then of course, we're in the airport on the way home and we're all signing up for RE because I, at that time I hadn't been a member yet, but I def- it was definitely an after the fact, but I'm so grateful that I did. I want to bring up something that came to my mind as you were sharing about Paul. And I think that whether it's sobriety or the pursuit of something else, you know, circle of influence is always so important. And immediately I thought, you know, Paul was part of your circle of influence. And like you said, maybe without him knowing, but we have this ability to have this almost like this inner circle of influence where it's perhaps people that we do end up interacting with or talking to friends, family. And then we have this outer circle of influence that are people that inspire and motivate us. And and how cool that he kind of went from being on the outer circle of influence to you actually meeting him and and kind of having him as someone in your inner circle of influence, which I think is really cool. And, and what a cool opportunity we have, you know, for those people that I get re- emails and reviews all the time asking where Paul is at. And I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> he's going to pop in for an intro. Uh, he's going to pop in for an episode. But I, I understand what you're saying. You know, people count on people that have affected them without other people even knowing and how cool that we do have a culture here recovery elevator where you can connect with us you know I'm like if you want to send me an email if you want to send Paul an email we are so happy to make those connections and I'm just I'm really glad you made it happen for yourself and you even started your own podcast yeah it was like I said, he was my first guest and I was stuttering and stumbling because not only was he a celebrity in my mind, it was my first time recording a podcast. <laughs> it was a double whammy, but we survived. And yeah, I'm very, I'm very grateful. I literally was listening to his show. I went, I drove to group and I declared it in that group. I was like, everything he says is relevant to our recovery too, but we need a gambling podcast. And then within a year, I had, I had gotten the courage and the education to do it. Awesome. I'm proud of you, Bobby. And what do you do nowadays when you have some sort of craving or trigger or something that makes you feel uncomfortable? I believe, I believe for me that everything has happened for a reason, right? And that I'm now, anything that happens from now on is happening for a reason and that I can overcome anything after the things that I've overcome. So it's kind of my logic. So there's been a couple times where like on the golf course or with certain people, like on my road trip in September, I I was coming across a lot of people I partied with. And my philosophy was either they're going to accept me with no alcohol or I wasn't even sure if I was going to drink on the trip. I told my counselor all the way up to the moment before we walked into the restaurant, I texted her. I'm like, I'm going to have fermented juice because that's what she calls it to take away the power of alcohol. She's like, why do you want to drink fermented juice? I'm like, so during these times that I'm feeling that way, again, it goes back to paying attention to what I've learned along the way. I don't need alcohol for people to love me and care about me and want to hang out with me. And I don't need to go back to a destructive life. So when I am having those urges or those thoughts like, oh, it just won't matter, I can, I can have that conversation in my head because of the learning. I will tell you, I haven't made the commitment to quit drinking forever. The way I'm broaching it right now is when I make my first million dollars, I'll drink champagne. That's the way I'm looking at it today. Now, when my first million dollars comes, 
I probably won't drink champagne. But it's a good way to make it not a today problem and to cure the whole, well, I haven't been productive enough. Like it's not about the money, it's about the goal. And I've already learned that I can't, I don't do as well at my goals when there's alcohol involved. Yeah, you're starting to really understand that alcohol was an obstacle for me to achieve my goals and let alone goals, but for me to achieve just mental peace on a day to day and for me to achieve presence on a day to day. It was it was an obstacle, you know, it was getting in the way. I think a lot of the times we always say it works until it doesn't, you know, it's when it starts getting in the way of your life, in the way of your relationships, in the way of your job. I think that's when people that may or may not consider themselves alcoholics or not have the right to question how they relate to alcohol, to this fermented juice, as you say, because it is getting in the way and you only have one life in this body. So, I mean, it's not a dress rehearsal, right? Yes. And I, I have to say, too, I have I have so much gratitude to my drinking career, because if I wasn't getting in trouble, if I wasn't getting drunk at company functions, the way I feel about it is I probably would have got promoted. I was totally capable, but I I was a drinker and a partier and people knew that. And I think it withheld my capability in corporate America. But if I didn't drink, if I didn't get in trouble, if I was in corporate America and one of the good one of the good people that gets promoted and all that stuff, then I wouldn't be here in a position to try to help other people with addiction. So I feel like I won and that alcohol was part of that journey that helped me get here. So there's, there's this gratitude piece too that comes in. I don't know if that sounds bananas or not. It's there. No, I love it. You know, we often forget that we need to be grateful also for the obstacles and not just for the blessings that come into our life and, and being able to almost leverage, like leverage your drinking career and, and turn it into all of this momentum that you're gaining in your life is, is really cool and really neat to see. And Bobby, what other tools are helpful for you these days? How do you stay on, on this path of recovery? I mean, are you still also working on any of your, like, gam do you still go to meetings for gambling? What works for you right now? I, I am still connected with the, the Center for Problem Gambling, that first place that I had aftercare from. I And I'm active. Like, I go to the the conferences and stuff when they exist. I do a daily reading. I'm still podcasting every single morning and I do a daily reading out of one of the Hazleton books and I talk about it with the audience. So it's almost like I have my own little AA or GA meeting every morning. I, I do the, the meditation, the reading, the learning. I really am enjoying the discovery, like the recovery Dharma, for example. I had read the book and then RE started doing recovery dharma and I don't know enough about it. So I started going to the meetings and then I, you know, I would sign up to hold myself accountable to get to the meetings because it's really easy to be at eight o'clock at night for me to be like, I, I, I want to be done for the night. So I kind of hold myself accountable that way. So it's integrated into, into every day. And I, I'm a believer that self-care is key like absolutely key. One of my favorite things to do, although it's not good for me, is to go tanning. Like, and, and I get to zone out and just slow the world down. Like I'm locked in a box for 10 minutes and I can't go anywhere is how I look at it. So I'm at least slowing down for that 10 minutes a day. So there, I have so many tools and I, I'm still learning about more, which is fun. 
That's awesome. And I love, I never heard of, <clears throat> of that tool of tanning, but it's because it makes you slow down and, and just be probably without your phone, without all of the other distractions. And I love that you've realized that that's what you need and that's what's helpful. And I think <laughs> it's crazy because we have all these activities that are labeled under this big bucket of self-care. And to me, when you described that scene at the bar, when you got the text and you decided not to drink that in my book is the biggest act of self-care you know you decided to stay because I do think and I learned this from Glennon Doyle that when we need to drink when we need to run we're kind of running away from ourselves and the fact that you stayed and I think another person who quoted this was Laura McCowan who said like learn to stay I think she had a post-it or something I'm gonna totally have to fact check myself but something about this reminder of learn to stay. And I think that this path teaches that outside of not drinking, outside of not gambling is learn to stay, especially when it's hard, right? Yes. Yes. And that was hard. I didn't even, I didn't even know what, not only did I not know what I was feeling, I didn't know what I was supposed to feel in that moment. And, and what I figured out or where I landed is I had been so resentful and so angry at this man for, you know, picking the new family, picking alcohol and drugs over us, all the things. And as my recovery has, has been developing the last few years, I moved from hatred to what I call neutral. And now with him dying, I couldn't, I felt like I lost the opportunity. I wasn't grieving necessarily him. I lost him so long ago. I was grieving the opportunity of time to get to forgiveness. Like I felt like if I just kept doing the next right thing. So that was, that was the struggle. I didn't know that at the time. I just knew I was, there was all this stuff happening. The not knowing though, for a lot of people that's hard. And I include myself, you know, the not knowing what's happening. What am I feeling? What does this mean? It's like we get in this loop and I hope, I mean, I hope you, can see now in hindsight and upon reflection, like you said, how, how strong you are because we never give ourselves enough credit. Well, I also want to call out Odette, the, the value of community. So that was like a Saturday night. And because I had the center on speed because I had my counselor and all those things, I was able to call them. And first thing Monday morning, it was twofold. First thing Monday morning, I was doing all the things that I would preach to my audience. So there's that level of accountability too. If, if someone if someone was dealing with something, I'd be like, go to a meeting, talk to your counselor, cry, you know, do the things. So I felt this obligation to do what I believed in helped protect us from the addictions. And, and, and that accountability helped me push through the moments of, cause I knew it would be so much easier to drink. I, I had no obligation. The trip was over. I didn't have enough, a big major amount of time. It would have been so easy, but I call it practicing what I preach. I try to practice what I preach and, and owning that, I guess it's still the rule follower in me. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I can help it. I love that, Bobby. Yeah, the power of community. And we've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, perfect. What would you say to your younger self, Bobby? That it's all going to be fine. It all has purpose. It'll take me where I'm supposed to be in the moment I'm supposed to be in it. What has recovery made possible for you? Oh my goodness. Everything. Relationships, work, business, honesty, transparency, vulnerability, 
lots of things. What's your favorite ice cream flavor, Bobby? All of them. Yes, I've never had that answer before. (laughs) (laughs) What parting piece of guidance can you give listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? I would say it's so worth it. It it may not feel like it in the moment, but stick with it. It's so worth it. And when, when you do get the opportunity to reflect back, you'll have so many things to be grateful for. You'll have so many things to be grateful for along the way, but sometimes it's just not as clear during the process. And before we depart, give listeners your own. You may have to say adios to booze if lying. Well, one of the ones that came to mind is I might need to ditch the booze if my friends are surprised there's actually coffee in my cup instead of a Long Island iced tea in my coffee cup. Ah, Bobby, thank you so much. I really like that one. Thanks, Oda. I really appreciate you having me. This was a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I can't wait to share this with everyone. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. Bye. Very well, Team RE. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to, per usual, give you a little challenge for this week. Back to the puzzle piece analogy. I want you to think about something that didn't really make sense to you in your journey. A few weeks ago or a couple of days ago, that now seems to fit in better with where you're at. Maybe you tried an AA meeting and swore that you were never going to go back and now you're ready to try a new one. Or maybe you were ready to have a conversation with a friend about not drinking anymore and you decided that the timing wasn't right. So now you're going to call your friend and see if she wants to have coffee and you can share where you're at. Or maybe you felt anger, really strong anger a little bit ago and you didn't really know what to do with it. So you kind of pushed it down and now you feel like you can walk up to a punching bag or a pillow and let some of that anger out. You know, what was something that you put down in the past because you weren't ready or because it wasn't working that you think you can pick back up again? That's my food for thought assignment for the day. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, I believe in you. Talk to you next week. How do you know this is the experience you need? Because this is the experience you're having at this moment. In the seeing of who you are not, the reality of who you are emerges by itself.
perception of who you are, an illusory sense of identity. This is the ego.